Good morning, everybody. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Ryan. Um, I am not one of the pastors here at Meadowbrook. <laughs> Scott says that every morning. Um, and and uh, yeah, Scott and James are both out of town today, and so they asked if I would be willing to deliver the message. And that, that's kind of a neat opportunity for me because I'm not bound to any particular sermon series. Uh, today's not any particular holiday, and so I can talk about whatever I want. And so I want to talk about something that's been really meaningful to me that, that I don't think is that familiar to many people. It's, it's kind of a diamond in the rough. So for those of, you, those of you who are familiar with Aladdin, if you're Disney literate, you know that that's, that's Aladdin. It's a good picture of Aladdin. Uh, and, and in the movie, his nickname is the diamond in the rough. And, and that kind of implies that there's something special about him. There's something beautiful about him. But, but you don't see that just from looking at him from the outside. Right? In the beginning of the movie, he blends in with the crowd. And by the end, we know that he's kind and he's, he's incredibly selfless and, and, and he, he has the heart of a hero. And that's kind of how the book of Haggai is. So, um, really fast, Jared's laughing at that. Uh, really fast, I want you guys to open up your Bibles to Haggai. And I bring this up now. That's where we're going to be reading a little bit. I bring this up now because it's hard to find. It's really short. In my Bible here, it's exactly two pages. Uh, I, I did some quick math and rounded a lot, and, and it's roughly one one-thousandth one one of the total verses in the Bible. It's roughly one one-thousandth of the total chapters in the Bible. And about it being a diamond in the rough, if I were to give you a Bible that was missing John or was missing Genesis, you'd pick up on that pretty quickly. But if your Bible was missing Haggai, would you notice? Would you notice before today? In fact, right now, while you're opening your Bible, if it's not in there, I promise it is. Keep looking. I didn't do that. But, but here's the thing. I wasn't really familiar with Haggai until last November. And, and I was teaching the high school youth group. And, and uh, we had just finished playing a game. And we were about to move into the lesson time. And, and as is usually the case, we are not mentally prepared for a lesson after playing the game. And so uh, I, I said to the group, hey, take your Bibles, flip open to something, wherever you land, let's talk about three verses from that area. And so good old Kara Chambers flips open her Bible and gets to Haggai. And the first thing that goes through my mind is, oh, no, I have to make sense of one of the minor prophets. I am in trouble. But here's the thing about it. Haggai talks um, about the implementation of a bunch of prophecy that had already come. And that prophecy is, is very flowery. It's poetic. It's kind of difficult to read sometimes. But the thing about Haggai, it's the exact opposite. It's prose. It, it gets right to the point. To be blunt, Haggai is blunt. And, and so for our lesson that day, it turned out that we read exactly three verses, and they fit in perfectly with what we were about to study. And so we thought that was really cool and decided that, hey, you know what? Uh, Haggai is exactly two pages of Ryan's Bible. We read exactly you know, a little part of that page. We should pick up on this thing in the spring semester. And so we decided that our first two lessons of the spring semester, we were going to do a deep dive into Haggai and see everything that we could pull out of it. And, and I think it was a really valuable lesson. I, I got a ton out of it. And so when Scott asked me to talk or to, to do a message today, I thought, hey, why not bring Haggai? So we're going to talk about Haggai today. Uh, but before you can really appreciate Haggai, you have to know the history behind it. Ooh, history. Um, so here's the thing. I know that a lot of you are involved in reading through the Bible over the course of a year right now. And if, if you're keeping up with that, um, right now we're learning about the life of David. And David, David is the greatest king of that nation for a very simple reason. He has a heart that's after God. He loves God. And, and so one night, uh, David's sitting in his, in, his, in his palace, this gigantic, beautiful palace. And he turns to Nathan and he says, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains a tent. 
This isn't talking about God dwelling anywhere. This is talking about glorifying God. This is, I'm a king. I get glory. I'm in a gigantic palace made of cedar. God, who's bigger than me, his ark's in a tent? That doesn't seem right. And so, so uh, uh, David starts building up plans for this temple that he wants to build for God. And a few things transpire, long story short, God tells David he doesn't get to build it. But his son does. And so David's son Solomon starts to construct this temple. And it's called, appropriately, the Temple of Solomon. And, and uh, uh, it's this amazing, beautiful thing. But over time, uh, Israel starts to fall away from Yahweh God. And when this happens, a window opens up and Babylon comes rushing in, led by King Nebuchadnezzar. Does Nebuchadnezzar sound familiar? He probably should because he, he takes all of the Israelites and he ships them off as slaves to Babylon. And that's where we get uh, favorite Bible stories such as uh, the fiery furnace, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. And we get the stories of Daniel. That's all during that time period, that, that exile in Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar is kind of foolish. And one night he throws a gigantic party. And we're told in Daniel that when he does that, the king of Persia, Cyrus, who's a powerhouse at the time, is like, this is my opportunity. And in the course of one night, comes in, storms Babylon, takes it over. And we're told in the Bible that Cyrus is led by Yahweh God. And so Cyrus gets in there and he sees the Israelites. He says, hey, you know what? You guys are free to go home. I'm giving you your land back. And you know what else? You should go rebuild that temple. Here's some resources. Have fun with it. And so there's a group of Israelites that are like, hey, you know what? We, we've heard prophecy about rebuilding this temple for as long as we can remember. We're going to do this. We're going to build this temple. So they get up, and they don't know what they're going to encounter, but they go back to the land that they used to own, knowing that there were enemy nations all around it. And, and this remnant goes off, and they get there, and they go to the site of the temple, and they build an altar. That makes sense. And, and a year later, they have a foundation built on that exact same spot. And so things are going really well. And you know what happens? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They stop. They stop for 16 years. Nothing happens on the temple for 16 years. And finally, God raises up a prophet among the people named Haggai. And so 16 years later, 520 BC, Haggai gets up and he starts speaking. So turn with me to Haggai. We're going to be chapter 1, verse 2. And here Haggai is speaking to the governor of the land, Zerubbabel, um, who was... Uh, I know, great name. Um, he, he was part of the Israel people, um, but, but at the same time, he was appointed by Persia to be in charge of this land. And then Haggai is also speaking to Joshua, who's the high priest. So Haggai says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure. All right, let's stop there for a second. So like I said, Haggai is kind of to the point. It's kind of blunt. I mean, here you have God who says, you're telling me it's not time to rebuild the temple. I get that. I hear you. But it is time to build your paneled houses. Let's talk about paneling. This would have been intricate wood carvings. 
just like what would have been on the inside of the glorious Temple of Solomon. So he says, you had time to go build these luxurious homes and you neglected the temple for 16 years? And then God goes on. And he says, doesn't it feel like something's missing? Don't you feel like you're not getting what you should out of life? Something's missing there. Let me help you understand how to solve it. David built the temple to glorify me. You came back to glorify me. So glorify me. It's really to the point. And here's the thing. I could stop right here. And there's a great message in all this about priorities, right? God's priority comes above our priorities. And and we could talk about that for a while. But I don't want to focus on that right now. Because here's the part of the story that gets me. This remnant of Israel. It's about 50,000 people. That's a really tiny part of, of the whole group of Israelites that were exiled into Babylon. It's a tiny part. These were the ones who, when they heard that the opportunity was there to rebuild the temple, they went nuts. They were crazy. They were on fire. They had to go rebuild that temple. And so they go off. They don't know what they're going to encounter. They get there. Sixteen years pass. And God says to them, listen to this. These people say, since the time of Abraham, he's been calling them my people. My people. And by the time we get to the end of the temple, they're these people. There's a distance there. So here's the thing. If you take Haggai at face value, if you look at it as a story, it's about a guy who gets up in front of a bunch of people and says, rebuild a temple. But if you take it as dynamic, living, ever-relevant word of God, then man, it's about every time I've made a commitment to God and I've messed it up. It's about every single time that Scott gets up here and says something, or, or you're in your share group and something stirs inside of you, and you don't act on it. Youth, it's about every summer camp that we've gone to. It's about every disciple now where, where you decide that you want to change something in your life. And a month later, nothing's changed. It's about that. And so I think it's important that we understand what happened. Let's use Haggai as a case study to figure out how you go from being passionate to, to burnt out. So let's do that. My first claim. Oh, there we go. Uh, my first claim is that the people got comfortable. The Israelites got comfortable. So we're told that they go and risk everything um, to, to go back to Jerusalem. And they're in Jerusalem, and the first thing they do is they set up this altar. Why do they set up an altar? Because for 40 years, they haven't been able to do their, their routine of sacrifices that were laid out years before. And so they're excited about this. This is going to be a great thing. They go and they set up this altar, and they start their sacrifices. And then a little bit later, they go and they set up the foundation. So um, Ezra 3 says, despite the fear of the peoples around them, they didn't care what was going on. They didn't care what people thought. They began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been built. And see, here's the catch. Uh, They get this foundation built, and then they start realizing, you know what? We we need to get to a point where we can sustain ourselves. We need crops. We need need a house. I I get all that. And, And I don't actually think that's wrong. And so they go and they build those things. But then, instead of returning back to the temple... The thought process goes something like this. Hey, you know what? I can do my sacrifices just fine on that foundation. I don't need the rest of the temple there. And they got too comfortable with what they had. They let that replace their worship of God. And then they went off. And they they built luxurious homes. They built a bowling alley. They did everything else but return back to that temple. Then the next thing that happened, they lost sight of their goal. So they finally get this foundation up. The foundation goes up and there's a gigantic party and everybody's, you know, yelling around at the top of their lungs and they're praising and they're giving Thanksgiving. And this is wonderful. Except a bunch of the heads of the household 
and a bunch of the, the oldest priests who had seen the glory of the formal, former temple are like, hey, wait a second. That, that foundation isn't, isn't going to produce a building that looks anything like the temple we knew. It's not going to look anything like that. And, and so we're told that no one could distinguish the sound of shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. You bet that tanked morale. Morale was gone at that point. And then, and then it had another effect. There's, there's all this commotion that the neighboring enemy countries hear it, and they come walking over and say, hey, we see you guys are building a temple. Do you mind if we help? And the Israelites say, no, 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 this is to glorify our God. We, we need to do this on our own. And they get jealous. They get jealous. They wanted to play in this party. And so they start messing with the Israelites, and the Israelites encounter opposition to what they're trying to do. And, and it gets so bad that, that these enemy nations around them are starting to bribe officials. They're bribing officials in the Persian government to tank their plans, to ruin the temple. And so finally, the Persian officials in Jerusalem send a letter to the king, who's no longer King Cyrus who sent them along. And it says this, The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. Furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, no more taxes will be paid. And eventually, the royal revenues will suffer. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace, and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonored, we are sending this message to inform the king. They're goobers! Here's the deal. The Israelites find out that the king is unhappy because they're rebellious. They're not going to pay taxes anymore. And the king deals with this by sending armies at him. He responds in force. And the Israelites shrug, they drop their tools, and they walk away from the temple. And that's it. They're done with that whole temple project that they were originally on fire to build. They got comfortable, and that weakened them as individuals. They lost sight of what their goal was, and that weakened them as a group. And then when they encountered opposition, they toppled right over. We do the exact same things. Ooh, that's the wrong slide. There we go. We do the exact same things. Meadowbrook, we get comfortable. If you hear me say nothing else today, then hear this. Be on the guard against getting comfortable. We know what it's like to worship when it's not comfortable. We were a nomadic church. Once upon a time, getting this set up to worship meant that we woke up really early in the morning, got a bunch of boxes from somewhere, brought them someplace, unpacked all the boxes except for the piano, and then we worshipped. And then when we were done, it all went back in the boxes and we went and we put them somewhere. That was uncomfortable. And then we were blessed with this amazing building where we could do all sorts of other things. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, by the way. But it became easier to worship. In a country where it's pretty easy to worship. And the thing that we have to be careful of is that when the Israelites started settling into routine and thinking that that was the God experience for them, we can't do the same thing with our worship. We can't settle into Sunday mornings being routine and then that's our God experience. We have to be careful about that. Then the next thing, golly, the next thing is that we lose sight of the goal. We do. Has Scott ever been up here talking about something and, and you, you get this inclination that, that you want to try to be a better husband, a better wife, a better student, a better parent, whatever, a better something? And so you set out to do that. And, and a week later, a week later, you've already messed up. Because we do that. We're broken people. We mess up. When that happens, do you think to yourself, oh, 
I'm looking at this ideal. I can't hit that. I already messed up once. Um, and allow yourself to keep making mistakes? Or do you think, I'm doing this not about myself, but to become more like Christ? To become more like Christ. And therefore, it's about this process. It's about getting to a certain place. I think we do that. And then lastly, we encounter opposition. And it's not going to be a surprise to anyone uh, to hear that we live in a place and a time when a lot of the world around us would prefer if we just didn't glorify God. It'd be easier for them. Have you had a conversation ever where, where an opportunity came up to talk about what Christ is doing in your life, to talk about what's happening here at Meadowbrook, to talk about what you're doing on Sunday, and you held your tongue because you were afraid of how they were going to respond? I've done that. And that's encountering opposition. That's encountering opposition and allowing it to kind of squelch some of the glory of God in your conversation. Do these things resonate? I, I hope they do. Because here's why. If these things resonate, then mentally, you're at a place where you can appreciate the beautiful part of Haggai. That, that diamond that's sitting in the rough there. And it's this. God wants you back. God wants you back. In fact, here's my claim. Here's my claim. God calls us. He, he pokes at us. He's wooing us. Why? Because he wants to finish what we start. He wants us to recommit. He wants us to renew all those commitments we made. And why is that? Because he's awesome. Because he loves us. And through those things, he gets glory. He's glorified. And God is all about being glorified. I also know this because the Bible tells me so. Here you go. 2 Corinthians 8. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. Finish what you started. And one of the greatest examples of the, in the Bible of someone walking away from something and returning to it, the prodigal son, at the very end of that, the father says, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father had to celebrate and be glad. God celebrates and is glad when we return. So let's see how that plays out in Haggai. So the first thing that we see is that uh, the people are convicted. God convicts the people. We already saw that part. That was through Haggai, right? Um, pick up your Bible and continue with me in verse 12. <clears throat> oh, there's... Okay. Uh, verse 12 says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, again, that's the governor, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. Something crazy happens here. An Old Testament prophet gets up and says something, and the people immediately respond to it and go do it. If that happened all throughout the Old Testament, we would have a very different history. But here they do. So, so continue with me in 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. And so here's the next thing. God then joins the Israelites. They recommit, their heart is with them, and so he joins in to the fun. And here's the thing. Earlier I mentioned that, that the Persian officials were bribed to mess with the whole temple project. It happens again. They start rebuilding, and the Persian officials are again bribed um, to mess with the whole temple project. So they send off a letter to the new king. There's now a third king involved in this, Darius. And King Darius uh, doesn't get the letter in time for most of the temple to be completed because God interferes with that letter. In fact, I like to think that this is proof that God can use all things for good, including bureaucratic red tape. <laughs> but, but God interferes until it finally does get to King Darius. 
And Darius uh, looks over this letter and he says, you know what? You know what? I need to go quickly check the archives and see what, what's really happened here. And he finds out that Cyrus, many years before, gave them this land, told them to rebuild the temple, and sent them with resources. And so Darius sends a different kind of letter back. And here it is. There, the Israelites' expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury, so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail. And then he goes on. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. (laughs) May God, who caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. Totally different letter. Because God's involved. He's joining him on it. And then once God joins him, he does, he does something close, but even more incredible. He empowers the Israelites. He empowers them. He starts letting their handiwork result in something way, way bigger than what they should be able to do. And, and, and so I mentioned earlier that, that the, the heads of the household and the oldest priests amongst them, when they saw the foundation, they thought, no, eh, that's not going to live up to too great of a temple. But now they rebuild, and they build this temple no matter what. And we're told that God goes and gets the nations around them to bring them gold and bring them silver. And they're bringing them the things that were originally in Solomon's temple. And so God took their handiwork, building what they could, and he turned it into something that was worthy, that was amazing, that was so much more magnificent than what any of them had imagined. And then one more thing. God includes the Israelites. And so there's, there's the obvious connection here with the temple. Um, God, God wanted that temple to be built, I believe. Because what happens is, I mentioned that the remnant was a small, small part of the Israelites that were in Babylon. That temple serves as a beacon to pull that whole nation back together in Jerusalem. And you can see its importance if, if you look uh, in the Bible when it's talking about Jesus. There's a temple there. There's a temple there. And it becomes a center part of their culture. Okay, that's great. But, but God goes on to do something even bigger. God works through Zerubbabel, that governor, in an incredible way. Uh, At the very end of Haggai, a whole page later, um, Haggai is speaking to Zerubbabel, channeling God. And he says, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, and make you like my signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. What is a signet ring? It's the ring that a king would usually wear on a necklace around their neck um, that, that that they would use to seal documents. And so God here is saying, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you of a kingly line. Now, um, something neat about Zerubbabel, turns out that he's a lost son of David. So there's a kingly line. But something else that's neat about Zerubbabel, he shows up again in the Bible. He shows up in Matthew, in the New Testament. At the very beginning of Matthew, when it's going through the lineage of Jesus, Zerubbabel is Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather. God included Zerubbabel because of his faith for something that was so much more. And my claim in all of this is that God wants to include us as well. He wants to include us as well. If you need proof, you can look to the Bible. Um, But not just to one particular part. Look at the entire Bible. Once upon a time, once upon a time, we had a great relationship with God. We had a great relationship with God. And, And he was including us in creation. Adam got to name the animals. That's great. But we went and we messed that up. 
in the Garden of Eden. And so um, if you've been reading through the Bible with us, you can see all these places in, in Exodus and in Numbers and Levit- Leviticus and Deuteronomy where God is laying out a law that's there to show that distance. God's convicting us. And then many years later, something great happens. Jesus shows up. God joins us in Jesus. And the thing about that is now God's walking with us. Now God's there. He's provided a way if we accept Jesus to, to, to repair that relationship that we messed up so many years before. And then once that happens, God empowers us through the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, and you can probably see this coming a mile away, he includes us in what he's doing. He includes us in what he's doing. And the thing about this is, it's important that we're keeping up with our commitments, that we, we pick up on those things, because we don't know how God's going to use that. And that's part of how God uses us. So, while I've been talking today, I hope that there's something that's been stirring inside of you. Some, some temple in your life that you need to finish. In fact, my problem with this, one of the reasons I like Haggai, is it's not coming up with one temple that I need to finish. It's figuring out where I need to start. But here's the thing. If there's something on your mind, if there's something that's been stirring at you today, I, I want to challenge you with three things. The first one, I want you to write it down. Write it down. There's a spot on your connection card where you can write down a commitment. That's great. Use that. That's a perfect spot for it. But if you don't want to do that, then please just write it down anywhere. Because it takes this thing that's floating around in you, and it gives you a concrete place, a concrete place where you can rationally think about it. And think about what you need to do with it. And then the second thing. I want you to tell someone. Please, tell someone. Tell someone that you trust. Tell someone who's going to hold you accountable. Because this is the way that you don't get comfortable. They're there to help with that. This is the way that you don't lose sight of the goal. They're there to help you with that. This is the way that that you don't let opposition knock you down. They're there to help you with that. So, So once you've done these two things, there's one more I want you to remember it. And there's a neat way to do this. If you've been following along with us and reading through the Bible in a year, you're not going to touch Haggai until September. End of September. September 28th. Haggai Day. (laughs) That's not on the official calendar, by the way. When, When you get to Haggai, let this serve as something that reminds you of this conversation today, of that commitment in your life, and check in with yourself not just on, have I kept up with it? If not, it's time to re-recommit. But, but also, how has God used that thing? That's why we need to remember, the Bible tells us to build piles of stones. So that when, when we cross a place, we can say, hey, you know what? Something big happened here for God. And it reminds us of how God is active in our life. So remember. Okay, pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, I, I thank you for this opportunity to... Um, to just bring this message today. And Father, um, we thank you for Haggai. Uh, It's not the most well-known book of the Bible, but Father, I think it's a powerful one. And I just thank you for that message that regardless of where we are with the things that we've done, Father, um, you want us back. You want us back. And you want us back because you want to use us in glorious things around you, Father. And so with respect to to the things that have been on our heart, um, I just pray that you would help us to honor those, that you would give us someone who can keep us accountable. And Father, um, through those things, I just pray that, uh, that the world can see that you're awesome, the world can see that you love us, and that through those things you're glorified. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.